Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. All right, welcome back to Killer Queens. We are on to part two of the Wichita Massacre. Mm-hmm. Rough stuff. We got through the rough, the worst of it, I think, though. Yeah, I think. We can yeah. only hope. If you were not here last week or this is your very first episode, definitely go back and listen to part one. If you choose uh, to, there are some trigger warnings that may make you want to skip this whole case altogether, and that's fine. Yes, definitely. So those trigger warnings are rape as well as mentions of child abuse, suicide, cruelty to animals, and alcoholism. So if you need to bypass because of those, by all means, do so. Mm -hmm. Before we get into the case, just a friendly reminder that if you want extra episodes, you can check out our Patreon. Mm -hmm. We do three episodes a week, including what we do on the Patreon in this main feed. So we do a murder mixtape every Wednesday. That's a full episode. It's usually an hour long, at least. We cannot (laughs) shut up. When we first started those, I was like, they'll be quick 30-minute episodes. And then I was like, but I haven't met us. When you first started, your voice was awful. (laughs) Like today or in the beginning? Just now when you said, they're going to be quick little 30-minute episode. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what my voice is doing either. The Tennessee allergies are... It was literally covered in snow yesterday, mm-hmm. and now today it's like spring, and it's going to be 60, and now my voice is all yes, cracky. and I think Terrell and I have both come to the consensus that we have... There's an allergy season that lasts about 365 days. Yeah, exactly. So this week, our mixtape that released on Wednesday is Eric Cross. And then we started a new doc jam this week. And I'm going to leave that as a surprise because from the past, when we're recording this, we don't yet know what it's going to be. (laughs) But it is going to be full episode by episode coverage of an entire docuseries. So that starts on, uh, that started yesterday. So let's get into the case. Yeah, let's get into the case. Also, all of those episodes are ad-free, if you like ad-free episodes. Okay, so we're going to jump back in today. So where we left off last week was the crime spree has, we hope, come to a close because now the police are on to what vehicle the cars are driving. They've got Jason Beffert's truck. So HG has been taken to the hospital. She's getting medical treatment. And we just located the truck in an apartment complex mm-hmm. in Wichita, the most luxurious city in the United States of yes, America. Where the streets are paved in gold. So let us get to the arrest. Yes. When the description of the silver Dodge Dakota hit the Wichita stations, a man called the police to report that that truck was in the parking lot at his apartment complex. Police ran out immediately to the complex. By 7.30 a.m., the police confirmed that the truck was, in fact, Jason Beffert's truck. While they were there, another resident came out and told the officers that he had actually helped a man carry a large TV up to a third floor apartment and could direct them to it. (laughs) It's like everything is lining up so perfectly. Exactly. And it's like the nerve of this fucking guy 
to get there and be like, hey, man, can you help me carry this TV up? Like, you know, a neighbor or somebody that you don't know that well is going to be like, oh, I must have got a new TV. Like, did they even have a conversation about it? You right. know, like, oh, had a sale on TV somewhere or whatever. Like, ugh, and you know, know, in 2000, those TVs were tube TVs. If it was big, it was oh, fucking man. massive. Yeah, you definitely needed help to get to that the one third up there. Floor? Goodness. Mm-hmm. The police rallied the troops. 86 officers and patrol cars had come to the complex. And there were a number of officers that stayed on the ground while another crew of officers silently crept up to the apartment. When they knocked on the apartment, a woman answered, but the door was still partly closed by a chain lock. The officers could see inside enough to see that there was a lot of stuff around the apartment, so it looked almost like someone had just moved in. Then they heard the sliding porch door open and the officers below were yelling that someone was trying to get out of the apartment. The officers in the hallway burst in and took the man to the ground. It was Reginald Carr and he just said, shit, I'm going to need a lawyer. The jig is up, man. What was he going to do? Scale the apartment complex from the third floor? He was damn sure going to try. Yeah, he was. Hope he had a parachute. However, Jonathan wasn't with him. There are a few stories about how Jonathan was located. One, Jonathan had met a girl about a week earlier and was asleep at her house. The girlfriend's mother had come home early from work and saw him. She got, quote unquote, an eerie feeling about him, and he seemed to match the description of the men on the news. She picked up his leather jacket and found the engagement ring. She knew it couldn't be for her daughter as they had only known each other for a week. The woman remembered that the police were looking for a Plymouth and that the man had a Plymouth sitting in the driveway. She quietly approached her daughter and told her to get her niece and that they were leaving. The three women crossed the street to a neighbor's house and the mother called 911 while they walked. She told the police that the guy that they wanted was at their house. Then she saw him on her porch and he ran from the house. Two, Jonathan was at his girlfriend's house and the news was on. They saw Reginald being arrested and the girlfriend was like, hey, isn't that your brother? Then her mom worried that the man in her house was packing a weapon, so she checked his coat pockets. She found the engagement ring and excused herself to go to the neighbors. There she called the police. Jonathan bolted when he heard sirens. Either one of these stories, how much shit do you think those girls got from the mom (laughs) after this happened? Like, really? You can't pick them better than this? Seriously? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She's like, we got to talk about your Exactly, Something got to be wrong there. Either way, the police came to the girlfriend's house and Jonathan ran from the police, but he was caught two blocks away and arrested. He had over $1,000 in cash on him and he had lost a shoe while he was running. By noon on the 15th, both men were in custody. With their faces on the news, Andy Schreiber saw them and identified Reginald as the one of the men that kidnapped and robbed him. Reginald was also identified from a picture lineup by Anne Walenta after his arrest. Unfortunately, she would die a few days later of a pulmonary embolism as a complication after being shot. So sad. Mm. I mean, she survived so much and that is so sad. With the Carr brothers being identified in Andy Schreiber's robbery and Anne Walenta's shooting, as well as having the property from the triplex in their possession and AHG's identification, The case against them was already pretty solid. A warrant was issued for DNA testing and a nurse took samples of both brothers' hair, blood, and saliva. Jonathan Carr asked Detective Kelly Otis what happened to the people who were caught in another quadruple homicide in Wichita just days before the cars on December 7th. Otis told Jonathan that they got death by lethal injection. Richard Thames of the Wichita Eagle said, 
It was a shocking crime because of the apparent randomness of it, but others didn't think it was random. Jason Beffert's service was on December 21st, 2000, the day before he had planned to propose to HG and just days before Christmas. The reverend said of Jason's killers, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He asked that there be a victory of love over hate, a victory of mercy over justice. At Heather Muller's funeral, the reverend said, he must be like, we must be like Christ who forgave his enemies. He told the mourners that in talking to Heather's mom, she had felt the same way and had told him Heather would want us to pray for her murderers and Heather would probably praying for them at the moment of her death. That is so sad. She's just, I mean, all of these people in this house, like we talk about it so much, but how (sighs) did five individuals who are salt of the earth, selfless people, find themselves together at the same time and all have this thing happen to them? I know. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, just some of the brightest people get taken Mm -hmm. away. So sad. All right. So let's get to the trial. Before the trial was supposed to start in September of 2001, there were also some issues with why Reginald Carr had been out and about in the first place. So we kind of talked about this in the first episode a little bit, and we mentioned we'd get to that later. State Representative Tony Powell accused the current Attorney General David Adkins of contributing to these murders because Adkins had supported a bill that shortened the amount of time a convict stayed on parole and supervised. Since that law was instituted while Reginald was on parole for aggravated assault and drug charges, his parole term went from two years to one year, and then, due to a paperwork error, his parole was sliced in half again, and Reginald Carr was released from supervised parole six months earlier than the one-year mark. Oh my gosh, so he completed 25% of his Mm -hmm. original parole. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's math for you guys. Adkins replied by saying, this is more of a despicable reflection on his Powell's character and doesn't take into account an understanding of the law or the facts of the case. So the cars ended up being charged with 113 different crimes and they were going to go on trial together. Judge Paul Clark presided over the trial and there were a slew of lawyers for the defense and the prosecution. The prosecution was Chief Deputy District Attorney Kim Parker, who assisted Nola Fauston. Then there was Reginald's team of Jay Green and Val Wachtel. Jonathan's team was Mark Manna and Ron Evans. And apparently, um, Jay Green on Reginald's team had a, quote, neat ponytail of gray hair, Mm. which um, Sloan said almost sounds like the wigs they used to wear in the olden times. Well, and they still wear them in certain parts of the world, like in... The UK. I That's think that they true. Still... Yeah, mm-hmm. they sure do. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's all I can think about with those. With wigs. your wooden teeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an always sunny reference. Yes. <laughs> Judge Clark had rejected a motion to move the trial out of Sedgwick County. The defense had a poll that showed that 74% of the county thought they were definitely guilty or probably guilty. They argued that they couldn't have a fair trial there, but no trial had been moved out of the county in over 40 years. Hmm. The defense had also wanted to separate the trials, but the prosecutor said that many people accused of committing crimes together often stood trial together. The prosecution also made the point that this was probably not going to be a long case, and yet it involved at least 70 witnesses. 
So moving the trial out of Sedgwick County would be inconvenient for the witnesses and expensive for everyone. I mean, if they did two trials and they were going to call all the same witnesses anyway and have them both out way outside of the county. Yeah, it's just going to be double as expensive. And also for these witnesses, like you're thinking about people like HG and Mm -hmm. Andy Schreiber who are going to have to relive that twice. Yeah, it's just a lot. And in most cases, I think that I would probably, even though I cannot stand these people and they're guilty as sin, like in most cases, I would think, yeah, that that really isn't a fair trial because that many people in the county do already believe that they're guilty. But how much evidence they had against them, I don't think that that, that the news coverage is going to, I don't think it's swaying anybody. There's so much evidence that I don't know that any of those things would have swayed the outcome, you know? Right. It's just, there's so, there's no other conclusion to come to. Mm -mm. There's just not. In another attempt to delay the trial, Jonathan's attorneys attempted to get him declared incompetent to stand trial, but Judge Clark ruled that he was competent after he reviewed Jonathan's mental health reports from two experts. This has been sealed, so we don't know what the reports say about his mental health. When the crew of lawyers was selecting the jurors, they would end up having to dismiss three people because they were friends with one or more of the victims. They finally decided on a jury of seven men and five women, two black and 10 white, and the trial was ready to begin. HG testified early in the trial and went through her entire ordeal over the course of two days. She described Reginald as the taller man in her statement. HG had to relive in excruciating detail the most horrific night of her life. A crime scene investigator testified to the state of Nikki, the mini schnauzer's body. She explained that the dog had been beaten and stabbed with an ice pick. Oh my God. What in the world? I mean, if you have to kill somebody, if you have to, if you have to kill an animal, which you don't, but mm-hmm. if you did, you have a gun. That was yeah. an easy, quick. Yeah. Why? Oh my God. It's so little dog. I know. Ooh, and we don't deserve dogs. And I'm just so upset about it. Yeah. The Sedgwick County Coroner, Mary Dudley, was called to testify to the injuries that had been inflicted on the four friends on December 14th and 15th. Dudley testified that Heather Muller and Aaron Sander had contact wounds on their heads, meaning that the gun barrel was pressed up against their heads when the cars pulled the trigger. Jonathan's attorney asked Dudley on cross-examination if the distance between the shooter and the victim could show that there had been only one shooter. Hmm. Dudley, probably confused at the fairly stupid question, told him that no, you cannot tell if there was only one shooter from the distance of a shooter to a victim. I feel like that's one of those things that like, I don't know, this was a really long time ago, like before memes were really a thing where like, you remember those chain emails you used to get where they would be like, this wasn't one of those that was like, it's four to 10 people you're going to be cursed or whatever. But it was like a chain email I remember getting and it was just a bunch of funny stuff, stuff that would now be in a meme. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh-huh. And there was, it was, uh, it was all things that were said in court that were just funny or stupid. Oh. And so one of the questions that I can't, I mean, this was what, 2000 and I remember this. One of them. You remember something from 21 years ago. I just want to point that out. That was hurtful. I do too. That's all I can remember. But- <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of the questions was, so these stairs... You refer to, did they go up? And the guy's like, 
did they go down also? And he's like, yeah, they're stairs. They go up and they go down. Like, <laughs> oh my God. It's so funny. It's so funny. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's like that guy being like, so there were four victims. Can you tell by four victims if there was how many dogs were in the house? And it's like, that doesn't yeah, even... Exactly. And the answer is purple. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a math, one of algebra the questions answer, or whatever. answer, of course, is orange. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> a forensic nurse who specializes in examining for sexual assault testified to the lacerations and bruising on Heather Muller's body that were consistent with rape. They had injuries on their heads, necks, legs, buttocks, toes, faces, essentially everywhere. Andrew Schreiber testified to his kidnapping and robbery and identified Reginald as one of the two men, but he wasn't able to definitively identify Jonathan as the other man. When he was pressed under cross-examination, Andy admitted that originally he had not been able to identify either car brother as his attacker from a photo lineup, but the identification of the cars was only a small piece of the prosecution's puzzle. They were able to forensically link the cars to all the crimes. They brought in all the items that were in the car's possession that belonged to the victims. All the things that were found in Reginald's apartment filled the courtroom. (laughs) Two big screen TVs, a VCR, a CD player, a 120-piece tool set still in its packaging, three remote controls, a cordless phone, power cords, drinking glasses, shoes, jackets, coats, on and on. I mean, they took everything. Mm -hmm. All the items had been identified by the friends and families of the victims. On top of that, a forensic investigator named Gary Miller matched shoe prints recovered from the triplex's garage floor to the shoe that Jonathan lost during his run from the police. Oh, look at that. Whoopsie. The bullets from Andrew Schreiber's tires and Walenta and the triplex were all linked to being from one gun. The only downside to this piece of evidence was that the gun had been found near the off-ramp a a few blocks from the soccer field, so they couldn't link it directly to the cars. A DNA expert from the Kansas Bureau of Investigations was called to the stand and testified that Jonathan's DNA had been found in a semen spot on the carpet from the house and swabs that were taken from HG. She also testified that Heather Muller's blood was found on Reginald's clothing. Reginald's lawyers tried to say that these drops of blood could have gotten there when he bumped against someone. <clears throat> like, maybe someone like Jonathan. Mm-hmm. I wonder if Jonathan <laughs> sitting in that courtroom is like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. I have <laughs> worshipped you since the day I was born. Like, I've followed in all of your every footstep, and now you're mm-hmm. throwing me right under the bus. Like, yeah. I don't know, but I'm, you know, it's just come on. But that's the way things go. I mean, you can be like super, super tight, thick as thieves. And then as soon as you get busted, you're like, hey, every man for himself. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not fucking with you anymore. Yeah, exactly. I don't know that man. Never met him in my life. Exactly. But he did it. Well, you guys have the same mom. So, I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. The prosecution also called the women in Reginald and Jonathan's lives to testify against the brothers. Tronda Adams was the girlfriend of Jonathan for like a week. And she testified that she had met the brothers on December 7th of 2000 and she'd been seeing Jonathan ever since. He'd even come to her house one hour after their attack on Ann Walenta. Jonathan had given her a handgun to hold on to for him, which he retrieved from her before the 14th. She also testified that Jonathan had called her around 3.31 a.m. on December 15th. 
Tronda's mother, Tony Green, testified about how she found out that Jonathan was one of the wanted men by finding the engagement ring in his coat pocket. Reginald's current girlfriend also testified. Stephanie Donnelly was described as pretty and dark-haired, and she testified that neither of the brothers had been employed at the time, but that she saw Reginald carrying around large amounts of cash. And she testified that he told her it was from his pit bull winning fights. Okay, we got a whole nother problem. Like, so when you see somebody with a big wad of cash, like a wad of hundreds, magnum condoms, the whole thing, and then, but you know that they don't have a job. So you're like, well, how did, how did you get that? And then part of you is like, well, I mean, at least I guess, okay, so we came up with an answer, but now I hate him worse or more because that answer fucking sucks. Like, Pit bull winning fights? Come on. Yeah, that's like, mm-hmm. I guess I guess he didn't want to say because I murdered people. But I think that the two are basically the same. Yeah. Why not say I got it from my lemonade stand? Yeah, the money's in the banana stand. Exactly. There's, There's always, always money, money in the banana, in the banana stand. stand. Exactly. Like, and he's going to ask this from a guy wearing a $1,000 suit. Come on. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, I just, I feel like, you know, if you didn't want to tell her that you killed people, okay, but maybe don't come up with something that is damn near almost equally as much of a piece of shit answer. Like, because those dogs rip each other apart. That's horrific. It's It's terrible. Stephanie also testified that she had lent them her car around 5.30 p.m. on the 14th, and they brought it back to her about 12 hours later. She testified that he had moved all of the stuff into her apartment. Stephanie also testified that she had noticed an STD on Reginald's privates, genital warts. And unfortunately, a medical expert would testify later that HG had developed the same STD. Jesus. This poor woman cannot catch a break at this point. Beyond just having their girlfriends testify, their mother and sister also testified, but they spoke more to Reginald and Jonathan's childhoods. Janice Harding, which was their mom, admitted that their sons did not have a warm and loving family. She said, I'm not a huggy person. She testified that there were no holidays that they celebrated and that their, quote, dad hit me once I picked up a bat once I picked a bat up and beat him with it, I told him he wasn't going to hit me again. Janice also brought up that Reginald and Jonathan had had another sister named Regina. However, she died of leukemia when she was just three years old. Oh, gosh. The mother also testified that when she and their dad divorced, he immediately vanished from their lives. And the time the boys spent with their grandmother wasn't much better than the time at their home. Janice testified that her mother, quote, flips out one minute she's normal, the next she's yelling and screaming. While Janice was testifying that her boys hadn't much of a chance to grow up to be productive members of society, she wasn't defending their actions. She stated, I feel for the other families. Everybody's hurting right now. She then spoke to her sons directly saying, I don't know what went wrong, but I love you. I'm sorry if I did something wrong. I'm sorry. It's really sad. The whole thing is just mm-hmm. fucked. Because, I mean, the fact that she's acknowledging that, and I don't know if we can say like, oh, this is where this went wrong. This is your fault. But it seems like there's responsibility being taken on her end. And I think that that's really powerful. Yeah. It's just sad. It is. It's very sad. 
I feel like if you're going to have kids, then fucking step up. <laughs> yes. Hug your child. Uh, who cares if you're not a huggy person? Hug your child. Like, I just, I don't know. It's just sad. Well, and we saw how not being very affectionate or physically, like, you know, like not having any kind of physical engagement with your children, like hugging them, cuddling with them, anything, patting them on the back, even, you know, holding their hand across the street. How that worked out for Jeffrey Dahmer. <sighs> right. Yeah. His mama never touched him. Mm -mm. I also just can't fathom it because I cannot You're obsessed stop with touching my children. Like, yeah. I'm always like rubbing their back, rubbing their arm, like, you know, rubbing their head. I'm hugging them. I'm giving them a kiss. Like, you know, I'm soaking it up now because I know I can't be able, I won't be able to do that forever. But like, I don't know. I just don't get it. Like, babies are fucking cute. Mm hmm. How do you not want to just snuggle them? I know. I try to, and they're just turned into cats, and they just claw me and try to get away, so. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they don't want it, but, you know. <laughs> just Whatever. persist. It's fine. Yeah. Okay, you guys, we have a new sponsor this week, and guess who it is? It's us. us. <laughs> it's us. We have some questions for you. Do you love Killer Queens? Do you love true crime documentaries? Do you love extra episodes? Do you love orange soda? If you said yes to any of these questions, then hold on to your butts. Do we have a surprise for you? So right now we are giving our listeners free access to our coverage of all six episodes of The Jinx on our Patreon show called Doc Jams. Each Friday, we recap an episode of a true crime docu-series, which is voted on by patrons. You get all our thoughts on the episode, the case, all the throw someone out the windows, and you dumb bitches, your little heart desires. If you want to take the Patreon for a test drive, visit this link, killerqueens.link slash jinx. Just enter your name and email and you'll be taken to a page with all your freebies. For about 33 cents a day, you can have three brand new Killer Queens episodes each week and over 150 full-length bonus episodes to binge right now. That's less than you'd pay for a surge. Yeah, totally. And you don't get the shakes. Mmm. Added bonus. Get exactly. the keeps on giving. So what are you waiting for? Jinkos to come back in style? Get your KQ on by going to killerqueens.link slash jinx. That's J-I-N-X. Lilas. Their older sister was called to testify to the sexual abuse that they had all three faced. Her at the hands of their father and then all three at the hands of their mother's boyfriends. She told the court about Reginald's history of getting into fights in school and Jonathan's suicide attempts. Then she told the court that Reginald had confessed to her that he had shot all four. However, when she was questioned under cross-examination, she admitted that Reginald had a history of taking the blame for Jonathan to protect him. She also tried to backpedal and say that she couldn't remember who was shot by whom. Whom, whom, whom. Sometimes it's who. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. Sometimes it is who. I know. A forensic psychologist, Thomas Wrighty, testified to Reginald's early childhood exposure to sex and drugs. He stated that Reginald was still very young when he was sexually abused and when he found pornographic pictures of their mom. Oh, geez. Wrighty testified that by 11 years old, Reginald was introduced to liquor and drugs by his older relatives. 
The Wichita Eagle reported that Wrighty found that Reginald Carr attended eight schools from kindergarten to eighth grade. By then, he'd sexually harassed a teacher on one of the days he bothered showing up. He was absent 32 days that year. Goodness gracious. During his freshman year in high school at Dodge City, Reginald earned 21 detentions and suspensions. After beating up a student, he dropped out of the ninth grade before the school could kick him out, is what Wrighty said. A different forensic psychologist, Mark Cunningham, testified to Jonathan's childhood. He referred to the five H's. Hopeless, helpless, homeless, hungry, and hugless. That is fucking heartbreaking. That is so sad. I don't know why hugless is the saddest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And hope all of them. Oh my gosh. All One of them. source said that their childhood led them both left them both so void of empathy and attachment that they could do this to other young people. But prosecutor Parker made sure to drive home that Cunningham had admitted that Jonathan knows the difference between right and wrong. Cunningham, there's no question he has awareness or wrongful behavior. Parker, he doesn't care. Cunningham, that's correct. So, I mean, you know, there's always that question, nature versus nurture. I feel like it's a combination of both, you know? Mm -hmm. There was a Dateline episode that I listened to the other day, and this guy killed a woman that he, like, his older sister had been friends with or something, and he killed her, and they were talking to him, and they were like, you know, does something, like, because he had been on a lot of drugs and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And he's like, you know, I was on a lot of drugs and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, you know, do you think it's the drugs that did it, you know, that made you do it or something like that? And he's like, no, I'm not a good person when I'm on drugs. But in order to murder somebody like that, you have to have that in your heart already. And I had that in my heart. The drugs just made it easier for me to do that, basically. It's like liquid courage with alcohol. Mm -hmm. but Yeah, because what are most yeah. of us going to do if we, for whatever reason, end up on drugs or super drunk? Like... We're going to dance a bunch. I will just or, cry yeah, in a corner. Like, there's a lot of different <laughs> reactions it brings out of people, but it's certainly not murder. Yeah, I want to I want to do karaoke, yeah, exactly. all, karaoke all, all the time. <laughs> so, or telling girls in the bathroom how pretty they are and like where do they get their hair done and whatever. And exchange numbers like we should we should be friends all oh tomorrow. God. Yeah, exactly. And it's like yes. then you look in your phone and you saved her number as like M8 and that's it. Like, all right, well, that was a valiant effort. Yeah. But yeah, it's like there's got to be all of those things are incredibly sad. And they did happen in these, these men's childhoods. But the fact is that there are also, unfortunately, a lot of other people who have childhoods just like that. And they don't. Mm -hmm. And they don't turn yeah, out Yeah, they this don't way. go on to, and not that it makes it right, but these are also people, these are not people that went to a gas station to rob them because they needed money or whatever and didn't hurt anybody in the process or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, which is still obviously incredibly wrong, but that's not what happened. They spent hours with these people, torturing them on purpose. Yeah, they took mm -hmm. time and a mm -hmm. lot of time to inflict the some of the most horrific crimes against them and then went back and shot the damn dog like yeah, i just exactly. can't exactly it's it's awful 
Dr. David Preston, a peer reviewer of the Journal of Nuclear Medicine, was called to testify and told the court that both Carr brothers had also had a physical factor in the men's criminality. He testified that both men had brain damage to their temporal lobes, which is responsible for risk evaluation and short-term memory. However, this is literally the only information on this claim. Also called to testify as a character witness were the mothers of Reginald's children and ex-wives. Uh, his ex-wife, Mandy Carr, said that his relationship with his kids is weak at best. Rochelle Cosman is the mother of Reginald's other son, who was seven at the time. And Sloan points out that, so Reginald was 22 years old at the time of his arrest. And he had seven kids, or he, didn't, he had multiple marriages and children. And the one of them is at least seven years old. So he was very, very young when he started fathering children. Yeah, which if he'd been sexually active since he was seven, six. six. Yeah. Cosman testified that Reginald did not provide child support and that he did visit the child and had a caring relationship with him. Then she read a letter to the court that their son wrote to Reginald. I wish you would come back. I love you very much. I love when you play games with me. I'm a good boy like you tell mm. me. This would be the only time when Reginald would demonstrate the appropriate emotions. He bowed his head hearing his son's words. That is so, it's just so sad. We talk about the ripple effect every fucking case. And he's got children who he leaves behind, who have to grow up thinking, look at what my dad did. And mm -hmm. what does that do to them? And what position does that put them in growing up? Now they don't have the support Absolutely. of a father and not even just the financial support of a father, but the emotional support of a father. Like children need both. Exactly. It's just, that's so sad. This is a kid who loves his dad. Yeah. And hopefully there is therapy along the way to help with all of those awful scars that are left. But I don't know that that gets, it gets better, I'm sure, but it doesn't go mm -hmm. away. Yeah, not at all. So sad. A character witness for Jonathan was a woman who had hired him to do some carpentry work for them. She said, I found him to be one of the nicest, polite, kind, warm, giving. He was the epitome of the finest oh young man. God. That's really laying it on thick, I feel like. It really is. And like, okay. I'm sure he was in that moment, you know? I don't think that these right. people are completely devoid of being able to be friendly to a person they see in the street. I mean, serial killers do that too. Mm-hmm. Because they can mimic what they're supposed to yeah, be Yeah, they, it, you know, I mean, I, I get, the defense has to do something. I get that. It's just, mm -hmm. okay, well, sometimes he's really nice and other times he brutally murders people. So let's just take that chance, yeah. shall we? Exactly. Over the course of the three-week trial, the prosecution entered almost 900 exhibits into evidence, and on October 25th, 2002, they rested their case. Jonathan's attorney would try to claim in his opening statement that Jonathan couldn't have done this because he had a ticket to catch a train on the night of the murders. But he'd gotten lost leaving Wichita, and that train ticket had never been used. The attorney entered the unused Amtrak ticket into evidence and then rested his fucking case. That was all. Just the unused train ticket. Now, if I buy a plane ticket and I never get on the plane, 
Can I use that as an alibi? A hundred percent you can and you should. <laughs> like I could have never committed this crime because I bought that the ticket. That is exactly no, I didn't go. the upstairs neighbor of Monica and Rachel's. And he's like, well, I could have cats. It's like, Dr. Yeah, Mr. Huckles. I almost called you, him doctor. I keep wanting to call him Hinkler and I don't know why. Mr. Huckles. And they're like, but you don't have cats. And he's like, well, I could have cats. It's like, well, but you didn't get on the train. He's like, well, I could have gotten on the train. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, okay. Well, you could have, or you, you could have gotten on the train or you could have killed a bunch mm-hmm. of people. And the fact that you didn't get on the train tells me that you were available to kill a bunch of people. And we have concrete evidence. It's not just this like, oh, I, this plan of something to do. Because we covered that in other mm-hmm. cases too. A plan apparently is actually more evidentiary support than somebody recalling the night apparently. before. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. all right. Well, that's one method. That is one method. Yeah, and exactly. you know what? Again, we say it all the time you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. Right. So, in the event that him having a ticket that he did not, in fact, use would totally exonerate him. I mean, you got to throw that out there. Right. Because again, how are you supposed to know if it's not going to work? You just got to try. Reginald had wanted to take the stand (laughs) and blame Jonathan and break his entire heart. I'm sure that's the only time that Jonathan would have ever felt any kind of feeling. Yeah. He wanted to testify that Jonathan had told him he'd been with another guy who was tripping and shooting people. He wanted to claim that he had moved the possessions from the victims to his girlfriend's house to help Jonathan. The judge ruled it as inadmissible and as hearsay. Hmm. Hearsay still confuses me a little bit because if Jonathan had in fact told him something about the crime, which did not happen, we know that the judge the judge really ruled it as was bullshit. But mm-hmm. if Jonathan had told him that, I don't know, hearsay just confuses me because it's like, if I got the knowledge firsthand from you, then that's... Isn't that admissible? But if if I said, well, Tori told me that somebody else told her that blah, blah, blah. I was not there to witness that conversation. So that is hearsay. But if I am there to witness the conversation, does that not count? I don't know. I don't know. In any event, this is bullshit and it did not happen. But I don't know. Just the hearsay thing confuses me a little bit. Because we're talking about direct from the horse's mouth and then the telephone uh-huh. game. Yeah, exactly. His lawyers wanted also wanted to enter medical records that suggested that Ann Walenta had actually died because of medical malpractice. <laughs> okay. This was also and even rejected. even if she had, she wouldn't have been in the position to receive medical treatment and then be involved in a case of medical malpractice had she not been shot. I know, exactly. That's like, some. it's literally somebody like running you over with a car. And then they're like, well, I mean, you shouldn't have been walking in the street. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you shouldn't have hit me it's with not the exactly car. The same. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, mm-hmm. how did I get here? They are taking zero responsibility for anything. Yeah, exactly. Like, she wouldn't have been in the hospital had she not needed medical care. And she needed medical care because she was fucking shot. Because you guys shot her. Yeah, because you guys shot her. Like, yes. It's just ridiculous. Like, pass the buck. Pass the buck. Yeah. I would not be good at attending a trial like that and then not showing emotion because, you know, you're not supposed to show any emotion whatsoever if you're in the gallery or if you're on the witness, you know, anything. And I'm pretty sure I would just be in there and be like, okay. 
Yeah. I feel like, like I would not be able to hold it back. Masks are a godsend for this kind of stuff because that would be the only way that I could do it. My eyes would probably give me away anyway, but like, you yeah. know what I mean? I wouldn't have like my mouth open or be like smiling and like shaking my head like you son of a bitch, you know? Uh-huh. Then Reginald's attorneys replayed the police interview with HG with no explanation as to why. It can only be assumed that the reason they did this was because they wanted to reiterate that HG's description of Reginald was vague. However, all it really did was upset the jurors and HG. What? Uh, Did they just find two attorneys that were just equally as much of assholes as they are? Apparently. I feel like they picked Charlie's uncle with the hands. (laughs) Jimmy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uncle, whatever, Uncle Jimmy. They called a DNA expert of their own to the stand and got them to testify that since they are brothers, they couldn't determine which specific car had raped the women. That's re-fucking-diculous because if I've learned anything from Jurassic Park, DNA is from your blood. And everybody has unique DNA unless you're an identical fucking twin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could tell the difference between them. <laughs> yes, they could tell the difference. Ugh. However, they, what they may not be able to do is since they both raped to them. determine which DNA was whose because mixed together or something like that. Yeah, it might be mixed together and they might be able to say, well, I can't rule either one of them out, but both ha- both have enough markers present. Like, well, like we, some of the markers might overlap, you know, but there's going to be two different DNA profiles. Right. Well, we know for sure that Reginald raped her because unfortunately she contracted herpes mm-hmm. from him. So... However, on cross-examination, the expert couldn't deny that the blood on Reginald's clothing was Heather Mueller's. In her closing argument, Kim Parker said, this is a crime driven by greed and lust, by selfishness, and by a twisted sexual gratification. Meanwhile, the defendant's attorneys just pointed fingers at each other. (laughs) Well, no, he started, it's like the ultimate sibling rivalry. He started it. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Come on. Reginald's attorneys focused on the fact that only Jonathan's DNA was found at the scene and that the witnesses had difficulty accurately identifying the cars. Jonathan's attorneys reminded the jury that both Andrew Schreiber and Ann Walenta only identified Reginald and that Reginald was found with most of the victim's property. So what that says is we have Jonathan's DNA on the scene and then we have the victims identifying Reginald Mm -hmm. and Reginald has most of the belongings. So what does that say? It doesn't say that only one of them did it. It says that they both did it. They're actually making the prosecutor's point right there. Mm -hmm. It means they both equally and inextricably took part in this together. Right. You know what it tells me? It tells me that Reginald is an older brother. And he's the one that like is pick me, I'm the leader. And in the end, he's going to take all the things because older siblings are greedy. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would be like, I get all the TVs. I get, Tori, (laughs) this thing is broken. You can take that. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, and you can have this stupid rinky-dink engagement ring. But everything else is mine. Yeah, everything else is mine. Yes. And you'll say, thank you, sir. May I have another? Yeah, exactly. I'll be like, okay, call me later. Yeah. Ready. Love you, bye. <laughs> Jonathan's attorney, Mark Mana, stated, Reginald Carr was not alone, but the evidence will show who was playing the lead role that night. Aha! Uh-huh! Directing 
things, don't just go back there and check the box guilty on all counts. Please consider Jonathan's guilt and innocence separating from damning evidence against his brother, Reginald. Now, he had me up until he didn't have me. Yeah. Yep. Can't do it. Nope. Cannot do it. So we don't have any testimony from Jonathan or anybody else saying that Reginald held a gun to Jonathan's head and said, you will do this, you will do that. Jonathan never said he was in fear for his life. Like, if that's the kind of argument that you're going to try to make, then at least get up there and fucking lie about it. But like, you didn't do anything. You have nothing. You just turn around and say, well... Well, and also, since both of them were not always together on the scene of the crime with the five, mm-hmm. five murders or four murders and five attempted murders that they committed. How are they going to explain that one away? Nobody was mm-hmm. there with the gun to Jonathan's head when he was raping the women when no. Reginald was at the ATM. No, exactly. Yeah. Well, you, you don't have it, man. You don't have it. No. Just drop it. You're just making it worse. Exactly. On November 14th, 2002, the jury returned with their verdicts. While Jonathan was acquitted on all the counts related to Andrew Schreiber's kidnapping and robbery, Both men were convicted on all the other counts. They were each charged and convicted with first-degree capital murder of Anne Walenta, and they were found unanimously guilty in pretty much everything else. Mm -hmm. Attempted murder of HG, they were found guilty of all the kidnapping, robbery, rape, all the things. And a count of cruelty to animals as well. Reginald was also convicted of three counts of unlawful possession of a firearm. The Carr brothers didn't react to the verdicts, but the families did. They hugged and celebrated. The court went directly into the sentencing phase of the trial upon hearing the verdict. During victim impact statements, Andrew Schreiber said that, quote, there are constant reminders every day. I still live in Wichita. He still drives past the places involved in his crime and the quadruple murder. And he knows it's irrational, but he suffers from survivor's guilt. And this is very common. Mm Mm-hmm. H.G. also spoke to the men saying, I speak on behalf of Brad, Aaron, Heather, Ann, Andy, Jason, and myself. One of my favorite seven-year-olds lost her uncle on the 15th. This year, when her mom asked her what she wanted for Christmas, she replied that she had wings and if they were real, that she could fly to heaven and she could see her uncle Jason and her papa. I wish life were that simple. I wish that I could put on a pair of wings and then I could go see Jason. But we all know that these are just wishes. And they're wishes that we have to wish because of two soulless monsters. Every day there's a memory or a scar that reminds me of that night. I wake up in sweats from my nightmares. I pace at night because of noises that I think are somebody breaking into my house. And every morning I carefully blow dry my hair to cover up the spot that can no longer grow hair. I look at my knees and see the scars from the carpet burns that I got from the rape. In the back of my and in the back of my mind, I wonder, will it happen again? I had no choice in what Reginald and Jonathan Carr did that night, and I wasn't given a choice to save Brad or Aaron or Heather or Jason. I had a choice to lie there and die or get up and live. I chose to live, and I will still choose to live. Wow. Oh, she got me there at the end. Mm. She also told the court that the sentence imposed on them will be a much kinder sentence than they imposed on me, my friends, and my family. Reginald Carr's attorney asked the jury, I ask you to extend mercy to Reginald Carr that he did not extend to these four individuals. Individuals, Bold move, Cotton. <laughs> yeah, let's see if it pays off. I just cannot believe that he could be so... So bold to say that. Look, I know that he's a piece of shit. 
and he ruined lives and he didn't show anybody mercy. No mercy to anybody, but, can but you, listen. Can you go easy on him? Yeah, you know what? I am going to lose this case and I'm going to lose it big. So if you could do me a solid, mm-hmm. show him a little mercy, that would actually look better for me when I get back to work on Monday. Exactly. Are you fucking kidding me? Mm-hmm. Despite his lawyer's pleas for mercy, Reginald had shown no feelings of remorse. In fact, throughout the trial, Reginald had been smirking and blowing kisses to people. Mm-mm. He'd even been removed from the trial multiple times due to these antics. Like, why try, attorney? Why? Exactly. Like, he's not, he's just making it worse. Like, fucking let him get the consequences of his actions. Like, yeah, exactly. I don't know. DA Nola Faustin, however, drove home the point that there's no excuse for an individual's conduct. You can't blame your family for what went wrong in your life. The jury deliberated for about seven hours before coming back with a sentence of death for each of the Carr brothers. It was also reported that the brothers were also sentenced to life with the opportunity for parole in 20 years for the murder of Anne Walenta. And I, I guess that's just because like they did shoot her. She didn't die right away, but she was. they were still sentenced in that case. Then Reginald was also sentenced to 47 years in prison for his convictions on different crimes, while Jonathan received another 41 years for other crimes. The judge offered the brothers to exercise their right for allocution to ask for mercy or apologize, and of course, neither did. They had been advised, probably rightly by their attorneys, just not to say anything, and they were formally sentenced to execution. It was Reginald's 25th birthday, and as he left the courtroom, Mark Beffert, Jason's brother, said, happy birthday, and then a curse word. I'm not really sure what the word was. I'm guessing like motherfucker, but I don't know. Yeah, I was like, happy birthday, bitch. I don't know. Yeah, and then uh, Reginald just cursed at him. The Carr brothers were not going to just sit back and accept their death sentences. Plus, in Kansas, death sentences automatically start the appeals process. So, you know, they do a couple things. They felt that Reginald being in handcuffs throughout the trial um, made the jury prejudiced to him. (laughs) Jonathan claimed that this prejudiced the jury to him, making him look dangerous too. And Reginald felt that he'd been prejudiced by Jonathan's defense that painted him as the bad influence of an older brother who corrupted him. It was like all this stuff. And it was because they were tried together. And initially the defense attorneys wanted them their trials to be separated. And it's one of those things that like, you know, that's going to come up in appeal Mm -hmm. that they tried to, I mean, even, you know, moving, moving the trial to another County or whatever, like there's stuff they can appeal on and they're going to go for every Avenue they can. Mm -hmm. The death penalty had previously been reinstated in Kansas in 1994. And since then, nobody had been executed. The cars appealed their case, and in December of 2004, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional. The cars' death sentences were commuted to life without parole. The Kansas Supreme Court claimed that the judge's sentencing instructions to the jury, quote, violated the Eighth Amendment rights by failing to affirmatively inform the jury that mitigating circumstances need only be proved to the satisfaction of the individual juror in that juror's sentencing decision and not beyond a reasonable doubt. And to an individual, capital sentencing determination was violated by the trial court's failure to sever their sentencing proceedings. My God, that was so None of that made any sense to me. That was so many words. (laughs) I said a bunch of words. I don't know what they meant. (laughs) 
The decision was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, who upheld the original death penalty law and reinstated the Carr's death sentence in January of 2016. This is basically a Supreme Court off because it's like (laughs) the Kansas Supreme Court is like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm overturning that. And then the U.S. Supreme Court is like, fuck you, I'm overturning, you're overturning. And then they go back and then they're (laughs) like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> then I'll overturn this part of it. And then the U.S. Supreme Court is like, eh-eh, we're not doing that either. And so then they just go back and go back and go back. And essentially, it's just all back to the way it was in the beginning because the U.S. Supreme Court says that doesn't count. We don't give a fuck. Yeah, exactly. In so many words. <laughs> exactly. It's like the witches, witches, they're not witches, the fairies on Sleeping Beauty, like make it pink. No, make it yeah. pink. And then they yeah. just go back and forth and back and forth. That's exactly what it was. I feel like it was just like the Kansas Supreme Court is like, no. And then the U.S. Supreme Court was like, no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the U.S. Supreme Court is the fairest in all the land. So, yep, they win. But let's talk about something a little bit lighter here at the end. Mm -hmm. The families of the victims have tried to move forward and simultaneously create something good out of the evil. The families did file a wrongful death lawsuit against the state of Kansas, claiming that the state was negligent because paperwork error allowed Reginald Carr to get out of prison early. Brad Haka's dad expressed that he was appalled by, he was appalled a mistake like this could lead to such severe consequences for so many people. Whereas Aaron's dad with his Roman Catholic faith said, it is unfortunate this happened, but we have to learn to get past that and let those things go and go on with our lives. We can't deal with how things should have been or could have been. We can only deal with today. In March of 2004, the court ruled in the family's favor when the judge agreed that the state basically failed the victims and didn't do enough to protect them. It was believed that the families could receive a total of about $1.5 million that would be split among the families. After six months, the families reached a settlement for $1.7 million. In October 2004, the Associated Press spoke with a representative that said, Three of the families received $500,000 each and the fourth family received $450,000. None of the sources said who was part of the suit or who got the amount or why one family got $450,000. The families also created different fundraisers, scholarships, and grants to honor their loved ones. Heather Muller School, St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic School annually awards an eighth grade student the Heather Muller Love of Faith Award as a scholarship. Heather's family has also had a fundraiser at her favorite restaurant, Bernard's, or wait, Barnard's? Barnard's? Barnard's. That's fun. Barnard's. (laughs) During that day, 15% of the sales for the day would go to Heather's camp. This was a camp that they started for children who are blind or visually impaired. Brad Haka's family created a memorial golf tournament, and his father, Larry, proudly proclaimed that he thinks we have had people from 20 states. A few of the families joined the Wichita County Foundation and founded the Forget-Me-Not Memorial Scholarship. In June of 2003, the first awards were grants from the scholarship. Mercedes Crawford and Jennifer Wynn were the first awardees. Mercedes Crawford had just graduated from Augusta High School where Jason Beffert taught. She had known Jason and had applied for the scholarship because she wanted to honor him. Jennifer Wynn graduated from Capon Mount Caramel High School and said, I try my best in everything I do and from everything I've read, about these four people, they were the same way. It feels good to, that something positive is coming out of what happened. The most and only precious thing that came out of all of this is the relationship of Andrew Schreiber and HG. 
During the trial, they had struck up a friendship and found that they could connect to each other in a way that no one else could. The two became closer at the end of the trial and went on to get married in 2004 and have two children together. Their friend told the Killer Siblings episode that Andy even switched his career after all of this and became a police officer. Is that not so sweet? It is so sweet. Like you couldn't you couldn't make this kind of stuff up. Like it's just I know. So they've been together like almost 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Holy moly. So So their sweet. kids are probably like our almost age. grown or yeah. grown. Yeah. Wait, that's like not that, true. Not our age, but like, <laughs> you know, high school or going to college or something. Yeah. Like that's crazy. Coming up on that's, grown adults. And can you imagine? I mean, going through something like that in your life and Andy is never going to know it to the extent that HG does. No. But but the fear and the trauma and the and even their mannerisms, the way that, you know, like those are things you can't get out of your head, you know, when somebody mm-hmm. when something happens, it's like just the way that they talk and, you know, even little things that they did and like he saw that too, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just and he went through the trial to it's I mean, it's just it's, it's amazing. amazing. And yeah. her hair barrette. I mean, I on. know. I know. One of the officers who, who worked on this case said that to this day at Christmas time, he leaves his outside lights on at night because that was the that was what guided HG to safety and to help. And that is going to make me cry too. How sweet is that? Mm. I don't know. It's just, yeah, because it was what? Two something in the morning and most people, you know, have their Christmas lights to go off. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, that's it. Cause she, that's the only thing she could see was just those lights. I know. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The whole thing. It's so sad. <sighs> Car Brothers, just pieces of shit. Yeah. Ugh. But like, you know literal. What? Try as they might, they couldn't destroy everything in their path, could they? Exactly. Thank God for the strength from the victims. And I just. I pray every day that it gets easier for the people who are left. Man, well, that's a doozy. Yeah, rough one. But thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. 